everyone, and welcome to the Productize podcast. This is a podcast where innovators, product creators, and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. Our mission is to inspire more people to create great product experiences. My name is Margarida, and I'll be your host today. Today, my guest is Magali Pellissier. Magali is head of product of SamNos. With a background in aeronautical engineering and economics, she started her career in analytics before falling in love with product management. She enjoys thinking holistically about the entire customer journey and has been recognized for bridging the gap between people, process and technology. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Magali. Thank you very much. Um, I'm so, so excited to have you here and for our conversation today. Uh, it's going to be about product management, but uh, also about your, your career and um, how did you move to product management? So let's start uh, right there. When I was researching your curriculum on LinkedIn, I saw that you have studied aeronautical, aeronautical engineering and also air transport economics. Um, and you started your career as a consultant where you have been, you, you were there for three years and then you moved to product management. Uh, and now you have already a vast experience in product management, having worked with more than 10 products and having improved those products and turned them into uh, products that are used by uh, a lot of customers. So... My first question to you is, what made, what made you move to the career of product management? Thank you. And I think nobody ever, until maybe recent years, will tell you that they've always wanted to be a product manager. And that's what happened with me. Actually, when I was a data analyst, I fell in love with the SaaS product I was using at the time. So I moved to be a consultant for this product. And in one of those jobs, I ended up working in the same building as the company which develops the product. So I kept going upstairs to their floors. I would ask questions. I would give them ideas. I would share my experience using the product with their teams. And basically, I was a power user. I knew the product inside out. Mm -hmm. And at some point, it's almost as if I didn't leave them much choice when to hire me to shape the product strategy. Right. So when there was a, an opportunity, which happened a few months later, I applied, I went through the interview process and I was selected. But mm -hmm. The good thing I would say is that uh, the manager at the time really believed in me and I didn't have any product management experience, but he saw that I could learn and he gave me the opportunity to do that because as soon as I joined the company, he put me on a course about product and about design so I could get started on the right path. Okay. Yes, that's really that's really important and uh, it's great the so you you moved like uh, as almost everyone now in the that is in the career of product management uh you start by doing something somehow similar and then you somehow find out uh the role and start doing the same, the first steps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what I recommend to people who want to move in product. I tell them if there's a product that you absolutely love and you know it, uh, then this should be your first step. Like go and talk to that company who, which develops the product uh, because you already have you already have half of the knowledge. 
Mm -hmm. So, in your opinion, like it's important that uh, you as a product manager have, have somehow some uh, empathy for the users because like empathy in the sense like you like the product. Yeah, so you've got two ways to think about it. Uh, either you come with a product mindset, you're already a product manager and you can learn a new product and develop that empathy. But if you are new to product manager, to product management, you need to bring something to the table. So if you bring this user side already with you, then that's half of the job done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, I also saw on your profile that you were a former artistic uh, swimming elite athlete and also you swam the channel between the, the, the Dover in the UK and Calais, which is a super cool story. And uh, although it's not related to product management, I would love to hear more about it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so swimming has always been a part of my life. And um, it was a bit before COVID, three years ago now, I wanted to volunteer. And I found this great opportunity to volunteer with people who have a disability and do activities in the pool with them. But unfortunately, when COVID happened, the pools closed. And one of the participants, he wanted to carry on training and he suggested let's train in the Serpentine Lake in London. So for those of you who are not familiar with London, because I don't know where your listeners are, uh, there's a big park, a royal park called Hyde Park. And in the middle, there is a lake. The water looks a bit murky, but you can swim in there. And there's actually a swimming club. Uh, and people swim all year round. So I went the first time, it was in October, and the water was under 10 degrees Celsius. And after that experience, just swimming, the, the test was only swimming 20 meters, I think. And I swore I would never do it again because it was so cold. But the people who go there as part of a swimming club, they were so inspiring. I socialized with them and I learned that a lot of them had trained for the channel and they usually did like not the solo channel swim but as a relay and that's how I decided to go ahead so I had to find a team find a charity to sponsor and then my main training was not actually swimming it was mostly um, bearing the the cold water because you have to know that wetsuits aren't allowed in the channel swim oh. <laughs> so that's the most difficult part um, and the, lo the lowest temperature I trained in was in February, and it was less than five degrees. But oh my uh, God. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I was lucky that the, the actual swim, um, the, the channel one, was in September, so it, it was a lot warmer. If you think warm by UK standards, which was mm -hmm. 19 degrees, but still I had to swim at night, and when you don't have the sun, it does get quite cold. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and how I'm very interested in this. How do you guide this person that so I you are swimming with someone that has a disability and you are there to guide them on yeah. like on the way? Exactly. Um, so it's worth knowing that I think the number is three or five percent, only three or five percent of people with um. What's it called? I'm going to cut that while I search for it. Um, with um, 
Okay, um, only three to five percent of people with a disability related to eyesight cannot see anything. So this person could actually see a few things, maybe shades and none of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, uh, he followed me. So I was swimming and he would just follow me and follow my path. And yes, yeah, so when we trained in the pool, especially, I had to pay attention to other swimmers to make sure that we wouldn't hit them. Okay, okay. So it's like you are on the front and uh, like he follows you. Yeah. Okay. Great. And also, like, how much time it is, like, uh, swimming the channel? In total, it took my team 14 hours to go there. And um, we all swam in turns. So it was one hour each and a group of six people. So I ended up swimming two hours. Yeah. And back, it was just on the boat. We were all sleeping because we were so tired. I think the boat trip took less than two hours. It was much faster than swimming but maybe maybe a very stupid question but it's uh, 14 hours continually swimming yeah as a team so there's a the person one who goes into the water swims for one hour then comes back the next person goes in yes so no ah, I, I didn't yeah. do the solo <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay still like uh, a lot but i was like imagining like uh, Iron Man on the seas, you know. <laughs> yeah, so people who do solo do that. Yes, they swim continuously. And actually, um, one of the swimmers at the Serpentine, she almost did it, and she arrived 200 meters from the coast mm -hmm. uh, in a solo swim, and she she wasn't feeling well, and she had to be pulled back on the boat 200 meters from the coast can you believe that so the following year she did it again and this time she succeeded but oh, okay. yeah that's how hard it can be yeah for people who okay, do it okay. solo okay great <laughs> great for her but uh, yeah 200 meters that's well <laughs> um well, this was interesting. I love to hear these stories, random stories about uh, my guests' lives. Um, and also, I would like to to explore one of your personal blogs that you, you wrote, um, I think, one year ago, uh, about uh, the fact that you decided to, to leave LinkedIn, uh, which I know you, you are back, right? I am back, yes, <laughs> with a different mindset. <laughs> But with a different mindset. So, well, my question to you is, why did you decide to leave LinkedIn? Um, and also, what other forms of connecting uh, with other PMs and professionals have you found in this journey? Yes. So I would say overall, I've never been a fan of social media. Unless when I was a teenager. And of course, I was using Facebook because this is when it all started. But I actually left Facebook more than 10 years ago now, and I never looked back. And actually, because you're talking about the channel swim, I had to sign up again for Facebook temporarily because of the groups there. And that's where I found my team in one of those Facebook groups. But anyway, I don't, I don't have Twitter, Instagram, and all of this because I find that reading the content there, it has a damaging effect on my mood. And I think you can waste a lot of time on this platform. So I prefer not being on those. Mm -hmm. 
LinkedIn is a bit different because it's a professional platform. And I used it quite a lot uh, to share, especially marketing posts about my product. So I would post about new features, um, asking for feedback. But at some point, I also started to feel the same about LinkedIn as with the other platforms. And there was one thing about LinkedIn that made me feel bad as well. It's all the self-promotion that happens on there. And I didn't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So I deleted my account completely. And I felt much better for a few months living without LinkedIn. It was great. Oh, okay. But then I launched the podcast because I thought, well, now that I'm not calling on social media, I've got time. <laughs> but we can go back on, on the reasons why I launched the podcast. But uh, then I realized that I couldn't grow the podcast as much as I wanted without social media. You need to be present there. Mm -hmm. So I joined LinkedIn again. I had to rebuild all of my network, my following. So now it's quite small. And I have to tell people that if we're not connected right now, it's not because I don't want to be a friend with you or connected. It's just that uh, I deleted my account uh, some years ago. Uh, yes. So don't take it personally. <laughs> um, yeah. did, you, did you use the, like, before you reached that point, did you use LinkedIn a lot? I, I did, yeah. For posting, for reaching out to people, yes. And I found that there was quite a lot of good information, like news and um, thought leadership. Yes. So, but I found, and then that's the alternative that I used, um, the Slack communities. There's a lot of communities around product, product marketing. Even you can go beyond that. Um, I mean, some copywriting communities, things like this. And I found the quality of the discussions much better on these. So I started using that instead to grow the podcast. And I found a lot of my guests on there. And I think that was actually better than LinkedIn for that purpose. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that was a good way to, to replace LinkedIn. But it was actually quite hard and to, to replace LinkedIn for other roles. So I was laid off a few months ago and I had to find another job. And I'm glad I was back on LinkedIn because I tried all sorts of other websites that match my profile to opportunities. And it was good to try so many other options because I like technology, I'm a product manager, so I always have some, some feedback about the product. But, and if I go a bit of, on a tangent here, I'm not talking just about social media, but it, it really bothers me that I couldn't live without LinkedIn. Like as a professional, you can't do without LinkedIn. So I need mm -hmm. a Microsoft product. And in my personal life, if I make the parallel, I've also tried to live without Google products. And I had to use all different sorts of apps, like change your calendar um, instead of using Gmail, um, use something else instead of using Google Maps, translate using other tools instead of using this and that. I've recently stopped using a, even a search engine because I thought I couldn't get good results without Google. So it really annoys me that I have to rely on those big players because I usually try to avoid them like I don't show up on Amazon for example mm -hmm. um so yeah it, it it's a bit of a shame but uh that realization but I guess I've come to terms with that thinking and that it's not my responsibility as a consumer to try and avoid those 
products. Uh, I think it's it's in the hand actually of the product managers out there. All the product managers will create great products, right? If I make products which are better and they've got the right strategy, as opposed to me as a consumer having to do my best to do the right thing and vote with my feet or vote with my money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But also I understand like uh, when you realize that uh, that thought that your life is dependent on certain products, it's, it's quite scary. Like uh, the Google for search in Gmail. Um, yeah. And w- then when you start realizing maybe the amount of data that these companies have and the because everyone uses them, then you start even like problem problematizing even more. But that's other discussion. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, thank you so much. Uh, also, I I would like to to talk about the your podcast. So you have a podcast that is called Product Perspectives uh, that has been considered uh, in the top. T- in the top 15 podcasts for product people. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, and uh, I, so this is a podcast about product management and you also try, you you give voice to the product stakeholders. Uh, my question to you is, why did you start the podcast with this idea behind? Yes. So I would say in general, I fell in love with the podcast format during COVID. And I have tried lots of podcasts about product management, but I found that they were a bit too long. Some episodes are hours and I usually listen to podcasts when I cook, so it doesn't take that long. And um, I just have thought it, they only bring one perspective, which is the one of a product manager. And granted, sometimes they have product leaders who are still product managers or they have product designers. But what I realized is that as a product manager, nothing really happens with just me. I'm just the person in the middle, but I obviously need developers. And we know how developers sometimes can speak a different language, have a different perspective to us as PMs. And that's actually what all the job is about, like translating the business needs into engineering work. But I also need to work with designers. And I had some challenges with designers in the past where we weren't aligned on what a minimum viable slash lovable slash everything you want to make of that acronym NVP was. But I've worked a lot with marketing and if you see the changes that um, Airbnb has introduced recently, they really think of product managers as full stack product managers. So they say, well, product marketing is important. Uh, so we have to understand it. And mm-hmm. beyond that, we're obviously talking to sales because they've got lots of requests and we help them in the sales cycle, customer success, support. I invested so much time working with my support team to understand the tickets, to help and make their work easier and further remote we also have to think about our finance teams more and more pms are in charge of monetization of the product you also have to think about the cost once you start have pnl responsibility 
-hmm. And the legal team, you were just talking about data and how ethical that is. There are laws like GDPR is this one example, uh, but we have to talk to our legal teams as well. So nothing really happens without those people and we come with very different perspectives. So there was a gap in the market of podcasts to actually talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, that's that's interesting that you you found out that uh, that gap in the market, and th that's so true <laughs> that uh, we are PMs like us dependent on a lot of external teams uh, and bringing the perspective. It's also like because sometimes like SPMs we often like talk within us, but then we complain uh, about how the other teams doesn't uh, uh, understand us. So. Yeah, <laughs> good idea. And I would like to to explore uh, your last episode of the podcast where you you talk about the future of product management and you made some predictions. We have already had uh, Melissa Perry here, uh, where we also explore some predictions that she have made ten years ago for PM, and all of them uh, have came true. Uh, so your predictions don't have a uh, time are not time bounded but uh, they're still predictions and still interesting so uh, one of the topics that you you talk uh, on this episode is of course ai and pm ai is everywhere uh, now and uh, you refer that this is going to impact a lot um, being a product management uh, and my question to you is what's going to change <laughs> in your opinion <laughs> Great. So to give a bit of context for listeners. So yes, yeah, so there were trends, things that we've seen in 2022, then predictions for 2023. We're halfway through the year, so hopefully I, I'm not so too wrong. And then for the next five and, and 10 years. And I would love to be back on the podcast in 10 years time and we can look back and see if yeah. we're right. In terms of AI, which is everybody's favorite word, um, the biggest prediction I've got is actually for this year. I think, and it's both a prediction, I think this is going to happen, and it's both a, okay, let's just do it um, for my listeners. It's, I think that by the end of 2023, every product manager will use AI in their job. So obviously some product managers are building AI tools. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about to get your job done as a product manager to make your life easier using AI. And there's two ways I see this could be done. There's either uh, by using AI tools. So for example, for the podcast, I've been using one AI tool which does the editing or there's another AI tool which does the... The, the summarizing of the, the notes. So this is an example of using a tool that's dedicated for that. Um, and as a product manager, it could be tools that help you do market research, that help you um, actually take notes during meetings, summarize research notes, things like this. But I think the main, so we've seen a lot of these so far. And if you subscribe to Product Hunt or any other, um, media that talks about all these new tools, you'll see there's dozens and dozens of tools like this every single day, right? So mm -hmm. at some point, um, some of them are going to fail, they're not all going to succeed. But 
the other main driver of using AI is the tools we already use are starting to have AI. So I'm going to give one example. Slack is launching AI capabilities. Pendo, I think, is launching AI capabilities. So all those tools we already use are going to or have already included AI as part of their offering. So, and we actually are probably using AI already in some of those tools without even knowing about it. Um, so whether it's through dedicated tools or the tools we already use that are gonna include AI, I think all of us as PMs are gonna use AI. And I know lots of companies have blocked the likes of ChatGPT and things like this. I would urge product leaders to think about how they can make their product team more productive, more efficient, and happier as well, because product management is hard, thanks mm -hmm. to those tools. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, to start using these tools, uh, it makes our life easier. Um, and uh, yeah, we already have seen Notion also launching the, the their AI to help like written documents yeah. faster. One of the things I'm most excited about as well is uh, predictive user research. I know that especially in, in B2B, it can be hard to talk to users, like the final end users. We can mm -hmm. talk very easily to the buyers and that group of people who decide what technology people are going to use, but it's really hard to talk to the actual end users. Um, there are lots of tools which enable us to embed feedback requests in the product. We also use quantitative insights to make decisions. But I'm very excited by the ability to predict the results of user research as opposed to having to talk to users. So uh, it's, it's user research without users. That sounds very exciting. Yeah, if you can do that, like some like you'll be able to, to do that, but that's going to change a lot because it will save so much time. Um, and uh, and yeah, for all for us PMs, like it's the best thing <laughs> to to have uh, the predictive user research. I'm excited for that one as well. Yeah. Um, well, let's move on to to the another subtopic that you referred. Uh, in the in this episode of the future of product manage, product management, um, and you referred that uh, PM is going to start having specialization. So it it already is. Um, like we have growth PM, but I feel like things are still not yet that much defined. So. Could you please give us an overview uh, on each specialization and what's the details of each job? Yes. So that's something that I found out when I was looking for a job and I thought, oh, I've mostly worked in B2B and I was struggling to get interviews in B2C. And same with other roles, like very technical type of PM. So I realized the market had changed compared to my previous change of, of job. And I thought, well, am I, am I crazy? Is it just me? Um, I did a bit of research and I realized that the all the other functions, all these stakeholders, actually, I was mentioning earlier, whom I interviewed in, in a podcast, they are already specialized. You don't talk only about an engineer. You have a front-end engineer, a back-end engineer, 
Uh, mm -hmm. You don't talk only about design. You have UX researchers. You have uh, graphical design. You have visual design interaction. Um, so same for marketing. You've got product marketing. You've got SEO. So all of these other functions are already specialized. So why not product? And uh, that got correlated with this article, which I recommend from Reforge, which actually talks about that. And they do an initial split, like high level, in terms of what type of work do you do as a PM? And the first type of work they say is features. Um, obviously, we should think of those in terms of outcome, not just delivering features, not just a feature factory, but this is the core PM role. This is what most PMs do. We have a product, we implement new features. Mm -hmm. The other type of PM work that they talk about is uh, growth. And there's been a rise in the last couple of years of this new job, which is growth product manager. So this is exactly that. So it's how can we capture more of the market? So how can we optimize, for example, to have a better conversion rate? So this is very outcome driven. You're really looking at um, moving a, a metric. Mm -hmm. The other type, which has always existed, but also maybe a bit in the background, is that uh, scaling work for platform PM. So scaling work is everything related to um, infrastructure, the ability to also grow. Um, so this is another type of PM. And finally, sometimes it can be difficult to, to innovate with just both teams. So sometimes it's worth setting up another team that's really just focused on innovation and trying to expand the product market fit. So expanding the business into adjacent products or adjacent markets. And that is what Reforge calls the innovation PM. So that's okay. the first type of, um, of specialization. And then what we see is that this is becoming more and more specialized than that with subcategories. So within core PM, I was mentioning earlier, a B2C PM is not the same as a B2B one, which is not the same as a marketplace one, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, within growth, you can be focused on one metric, for example, acquisition or activation or engagement monetization. Within platform, well, we talked about AI, so you can be a, a data PM, uh, you can be an infrastructure PM, you can work on trust and security, identity, uh, things like this. And within innovation, you can be uh, the first PM in the company, which I've done. It's quite a, quite a different type of, of role to be the first PM to join a company. Uh, you can be zero to one PM. That means you're focusing on launching from scratch a new product. And then maybe you hand it over to another type of PM. Mm -hmm. uh, you can focus on new verticals or uh, on research and development projects. So there's quite a lot of um, opportunities to specialize even further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very interesting, these four categories of PMing. Um, my question to you is that, like, scaling PM, isn't this somehow um, related to the product operations uh, role that is now also rising? Uh, because this is a lot, uh, a lot about uh, like enabling the company to to scale a product uh, and usually like product operations is bring here at the same time to scale the how the teams team works or am i confusing the these two roles 
Somehow, I agree that it's the same idea of scaling. I think if you are um, a PM doing scaling work, you scale the product, whereas if you are in product operations, you scale the product function. Mm -hmm. So you implement the, the frame, the internal frameworks, uh, processes, structures for communication that enable product managers to do their best work. So it's actually more focused on the people when you work on product operations, helping people be successful and run great products. Okay. 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 And this is more like a technical job. Uh, yeah. Understood. Great, thank you. Um, I also would like to to discuss uh, one more topic with you that is that you refer as a, a rising topic now for PMs. That is the importance the importance of bringing diversity to build uh, better products uh, and to mitigate bias of the product, and that consumers are uh, more more and more aware uh, of this. Uh, I would like to ask you to to expand on this idea. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll start from the Twitter example, which is an example where um, some users pointed that Twitter and Twitter algorithm may have some bias in it because it was only favoring white people as opposed to people of color. Mm -hmm. And what's the problem with that? The problem is that that people at Twitter did not anticipate that. So if you have a diverse team, they're more likely to, to see this. If you have a team of white people, very likely they won't see it. So that's really an indicator of you're doing diversity, not just to show in your annual reports that you've got a fair share of people of color, people with disability, um, people by gender and all of that, you're doing it because it actually makes your product better. And because your customers or your users aren't going to ignore it, because now we have to pay attention to this new generation of users who are the Gen Z and Alpha, and they're really tuned into this. They will spot those things. So you need to be prepared. So I think there's two sides of diversity and inclusion, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's one, having your team diverse, but also paying attention to the needs of new generations of users. Yeah. Yes. And also, like, this... In needs to this um, bringing making a product to mitigate bias, especially when the product is using AI. Uh, it actually it will demand a lot of work from companies because they will have to think uh, questions like uh, which data is my uh, machine learning model using. Uh, because like most of the times that's where the bias came from. Like you are feeding the model with the wrong data. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it this will bring like a set of new questions that PMs will need to think about and uh, and uh, break down uh, to to get the answers. Um, so it's it's a new challenge for sure. Exactly. I think the PMs now need to develop those skills and, be, I, I think 
data literacy is expected from PM and it's only going to keep on growing. You can't be a PM if you don't know how to interpret data and use it to make decisions. So this is part of the skills that product mm -hmm. managers need to develop to stay relevant in the market. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a PM job is always uh, continuously learning. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Magali. Uh, I think uh, we we can uh, close our our podcast today. And I would like to ask you for to finalize. Uh, why should people join the Prototype Conference? And more specifically, why should people join your uh, workshop that we'll give in October? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll start for why joining a conference. I thought after two or so years of COVID that online virtual conferences were the thing. And then I went to a couple of conferences on site and it was a totally different experience. I really met people. I had much richer, deeper conversations. So I think it's easy to forget from the convenience of our own home that there is a human experience to be had in those conferences. So that's why I would recommend going to a conference. And this one in particular, because I like the format, which is one day workshop, one day um, talks, right? Because you can leave a bit frustrated after a conference, but you've learned all of these things. And then you think, how am I going to apply them? Well, here you've got the workshops and my workshop in particular is going to be about a topic that not many people talk about. And you see a theme here. I do like to talk about what people don't want to talk about, which is deprecating products. Because mm. as, as product managers, we actually talk mostly about launching products, but we have to deprecate quite a lot. In my one of my first PM roles, I spent 12 months deprecating products, and that included a lot of communication, collaboration with customers, but also with internal teams. I think that's where also I developed that um, strong empathy for other teams in the business and that strong collaboration with them. But uh, how do you, when is the good time to think about deprecating? What are the drivers? What do you need to consider? Let's put a plan together. So by the end of the session, I really want the PMs to have a practical plan for how they might, if that's relevant for them, deprecate a, a product or just a feature. Sometimes it's just a button, but then you turn it off and then you realize that actually lots of people were using it mm -hmm. and uh, you got lots of complaints. So that's exactly what I want to work on during that workshop. It's going to be very practical and I'm super excited. Yeah. Yes. Uh, deprecating products, it's so hard. It's so much easier to launch one. <laughs> I think that that's why people don't want to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Also, it's a good reminder when you are building a new product or feature to always think like how many settings or interactions you are putting there because removing them will be much harder. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. You you have to be careful as well when you launch like a beta product or something like this because as soon as you put it out there, it's hard to remove. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much, Magali. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, I hope we see each other in October. Thank you so much. Bye.